due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Maybe you're imagining things. Or maybe that red car has been following you for the last five blocks. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's episode, I'm joined by Tracy Walder. We discuss her career through the CIA, the FBI, and as a teacher today, inspiring the next generation of women in national security. If you want to read Tracy's book, The Unexpected Spy, there is a link in the notes of your podcast app. Just scroll down and you'll see the link right there. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting it by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll get early access to episodes and transcripts. Also, if you're a fan of spy films, please check out my spy film, The Dry Cleaner, which is available on Amazon and iTunes. Just type in The Dry Cleaner Film and you should find it. I've included the trailer to the film in the show notes in your app. We also have some podcast merchandise. We have cups, coasters, t-shirts and tote bags for those who are trying to save on plastic during their weekly shop. Check out the link to our Red Bubble store in the notes below. Before we jump into this episode, I just want to give an extra content warning. As we move into the FBI section of our interview, Tracy briefly discusses some of the harassment and sexual harassment she experienced at the FBI. I was shocked and disgusted to hear what Tracy went through during her time at the FBI, as I'm sure you will be. It cannot have been easy for her to mention the harassment she faced on this show, but I am honoured that she felt comfortable enough to talk about it during this interview. So without further ado, let's get started, and I hope you enjoy this episode. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Tracy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's uh, great to have you on. For the benefit of listeners unfamiliar with you and your work, can you please just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I was a staff operations officer at the CIA in the Counterterrorism Center, specifically the Weapons of Mass Destruction Group. Um, I did that for about four or five years. Um, and after that, I became a special agent at the FBI, um, where I worked Chinese counterintelligence um, and then was a teacher for about the past 14 years or so. Fantastic. Fantastic. So you've written this wonderful book called The Unexpected Spy, and it's about your career in the CIA and FBI. And I wanted to just talk a little bit about your journey into joining the CIA. Um, and in your book, you talk about your sort of early life and you had some sort of self-confidence issues growing up due to bullying and some underlying health issues. And you discuss that it was joining a sorority group at college that really helped empower you. So can you just talk to us a little bit about your early life and why that sorority group is so important to your personal development? Sure. So so for me, I'm not sure that I can pinpoint it to sort of one thing. Mm. Um, but I think for me, I, unfortunately, the sort of city that I grew up in um, kind of tracked with the same people your whole life, mm. meaning, you know, you go to elementary school, junior high and high school with sort of the exact same folks. Yeah, I had a similar thing. Yeah. And so the bullying eventually kind of ebbed by the time I was a junior in high school, but I couldn't shake almost the damage that was already done and yeah. sort of the 
stereotypes that had kind of surrounded me. Mm. Um, And so for me, college was this kind of almost an opportunity to, I guess, start fresh and that no one no one knew me. Um, and then, you know, along with the sorority for me, um, that was a chance to sort of have less of an acrimonious relationship with, with girls, with, with women, right. I had been bullied and teased by them that I don't think I had a whole lot of confidence in how they would treat me. And so that, um, it was obviously very positive. I became a vice president and I had a lot of really good kind of confidence building, activities instilled in me. So I think that's what sort of drew me to that. It's a bit of a silly question. What is a sorority group? Because they're not quite, they're not that common in the UK. That's right. I'm so sorry. That's I just right. realized that um, they're, they're not common. Um, you know, they're in Canada and they're in the United States. And so um, sororities and fraternities are, are single sex organizations. So yeah. fraternities are male, sororities are female. Most of them are, I'd say about 150 to 200 years old. Yeah. And a lot of them were, particularly sororities, were founded um, by women who found themselves as sort of the only females really at their colleges, um, particularly, you know, in the early 1800s, where in the United States, we didn't have a lot of females that attended the universities. And so they sort of formed these collegial groups together. From there, they've sort of ebbed into almost a social sort of thing. Um, sometimes they take on this rap of being, you know, this party group. Yeah, yeah. Um, but really just to give you a statistic, uh, women that are in Greek, that are in sororities, um, tend to have higher GPAs than the all university um, GPAs. And it gives you a lot of good leadership skills as well. So it's a, it's a single sex group. Yeah, fantastic. And you do joint activities and it kind of, and you all kind of yes. sort of empowering so yourselves with it. Mixers, um, even wellness you know, like women's wellness, those yeah. kinds of things. Yes. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. So could you talk to us then about, so what is it that sort of drew you to the CIA? Because it kind of crossed over with your time in sorority. It did. So um, I had gone to college. I, I think, it, I can't remember a time where I didn't want to be a high school history teacher. I try mm. to think of the exact moment and I don't really have one. But I I kind of always, I loved history. Um, one of the things growing up, my father is a professor at a university. So I grew up in a, in a in a very wealthy neighborhood, but we were not a wealthy family, if that makes sense. Here in America, professors don't make um, a whole lot. And so for birthdays, what parents would do was they really saved. And my brother and I would have these joint birthdays and we would travel, we would go somewhere. So sometimes it was just another state, but sometimes it was another country like the UK or France, or you know, they just really believed in that. So from early on, I loved history, but I also loved sort of this globalization of history. So I knew I always liked that. And I thought, oh, this will be great. I could be, you know, high school history teacher. So I went to college, majored in history. But um, my sophomore year, I had um, an economics professor, actually, who he, he was really great. I was struggling in economics. And so I met with him and he said, you know, there's a lot of other things that you can apply a history degree for. You really should start like looking into that if you have any inkling of experiencing other things. So I interned at a a museum of natural history. Uh, I did kind of curating of exhibits there. I looked at law school, those kinds of things. Um, And so then I sort of looked at politics too. But then I saw a table at a recruitment fair my junior year of college. It's CIA. Um, And I thought, well, what's this? (laughs) 
And um, I gave them my resume. And I guess the rest is history. So what was that process like of going into CIA? Because I remember in your book, you mentioned you went to this interview and there was this man with these very uh, large glasses. So the CIA, and from what I understand, the interview process is very, it's still very similar. Yeah. Um, so I was a, ju- uh, I was a junior. Um, end of my junior year into my senior year is kind of my the heart of my interview process, if you will. And so it sort of takes place in, in steps. First, you know, they get your resume. And then from there, they give you a call because they've decided that they'd like to move you on to the next process. And the next process um, was an interview at a hotel that was close by in L.A. It was lots of people. So it was obviously people who, you know, they were looking at moving on. And you have sort of these one on one interviews. They're relatively quick, you know, like a half hour or so. Um, and then after that, you get another call that, OK, you've made it through this process. Now we want to send you to these coast and do kind of the polygraph and, and all of that. Then you hear that you've passed that. And then um, they send out a person to do a background investigation on you. Yeah, yeah. And so then they they interview sort of relatives and friends about you. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. So that's kind of toward the end of the process that mm. would have taken place just as I started my senior year. Yeah, wow, wow, that's pretty intense. So um, can you talk to us about sort of the beginnings of your career at CIA? Because you were you were actually at the CIA on the day of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. So are you going to just sort of tell us about the beginning of your career and what it was like to work on that dreadful day? Yeah, I've come to find that that's like somewhat unusual and that not a lot of people were actually in the counterterrorism center. Mm. Um, on so People were either there like after. So for me, I got my, my start in the counterterrorism center. You don't get to pick where you go. They sort of let you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I was placed into a center. And at that time, the centers were kind of a new thing and that they were realizing that issues were like transnational, right? They weren't so just horizontal anymore, just fit in this one country. And so for, for me, I was looking at terrorist training camps, um, you know, just their movements in and out of them. Um, what was going on at this camp? What wasn't going on at this camp? Was this shut down? You know, and sometimes our defense would use those as like targeting packages and those kinds of things. Um, and so on September 11th, I went to my office like any other day. The day before that, I had been read into a program, which I talk about in my book, but really not thinking much. Mm. September 11th was a weird day. Um, a lot of people think that I must have immediately thought that this was a terrorist attack. And when the first plane hit, I actually didn't think that. I, I don't know that in the UK, y'all would know this, but here in the US, um, about in August, early yeah. August of that year, a pretty famous baseball player um, accidentally flew his plane yes. into Brooklyn housing projects in New York. His son passed away. It was really sad. And to be honest with you, that was fresh in my mind because it mm. was maybe ago, month before that. Um, and so that's, to be honest with you, that's where my brain went initially. But obviously when the second plane hit, I realized that this is an issue. And I think we thought pretty early on that that was Al-Qaeda, um, simply because in 93, um, Ramzi Youssef was not successful in selling the World Trade Center. So I think that was a pretty easy uh, correlation to make. Mm. Um, I think it was a lot of like different feel. We didn't have time to feel a lot of feelings, if you will, uh, because you sort of have to get on with it um, and start fighting the war on terror. So I don't know that I, I can't remember my exact feelings on that day because I don't remember having a profound 
feeling. We had some, a sense of guilt a little bit late. That was a little later on, like mm. a month or so later. Um, but I, I, at that moment, it was just more like, okay, what do we have to do? Let's get going. Let's, let's do this. Yeah. And there was a sense, was there a sense of danger that day? Because the building did get evacuated. And I think there was even rumor that there was a plane potentially targeting the CIA building at the time. So I never personally felt, and I think part of it was because part of it, I mean, I'm in my forties now, but when I did this, I was in my twenties. And I think there's a sense of like this invincibility, Mm. right? That Mm. you have, um, when you're 20, I think I was 22, um, when September 21 still, 22, uh, when September 11th happened. And I think for me, it was just since of I'll, I'll be okay. I'll be okay. Um, I think other people, particularly not in the counterterrorism center were actually really frantic, which was weird. Um, we weren't pretty frantic. Um, but no, I didn't feel dangerous. <laughs> no. Part of it is because I was young. Yeah, no, no, fair enough. No, I remember that day myself. I was only 20 when it happened. I was in central London and I just still very vivid in my mind now. And I, um, fun enough, had to, I was working recently in the building that I happened to be in the day of the attacks. Oh, wow. And so it, was, it all kind of brought it back. It was a very eerie feeling that day. It really was. So you were in, in something called The Vault. Uh, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and about that time after 9 11 and the sort of the hunt for bin Laden and that kind of period after, after the attacks so that was the part of my book that i was really surprised the cia allowed (laughs) you can tell in my book there's redacted sections and so i kind of operated under the auspices if i'm just going to write it they'll tell me if i can put it in right um and so i was i thought that entire chapter would be out um and it wasn't (laughs) so as i think i said before uh the day before september 11th um i was read into this program um uh that i honestly did not think that we would have to use to be completely you know i know there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there that the cia orchestrated this and all of that and i tell you that we did not (laughs) um (laughs) but um so i yes i went to work pretty much immediately in the vault um and so that was a teeny 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 tiny tiny room but there was really just three or four of us on duty at a specific time um, and, it, you know, George Tennant, who was the head of the CIA, was in and out of there pretty constantly. Um, and so I think at that time in D.C., I believe the time difference to Afghanistan was 11 and a half hours. I, I believe I, I could be wrong. So we have to remember when it was day and it was flipped, basically. Yeah. So we had all kinds of weird um, schedules, depending on what we were doing. Um, and so about a month or two into my time in the vault, we had received intelligence that bin Laden was in the Tora Bora uh, region of Afghanistan. It's obviously a very mountainous, remote region. And we had a good sense of, of where he was he was located. So obviously that was a very tense night. Um, when I was on duty, one of the things we really needed was, was ground support that night, but we didn't get it. Yeah. Uh, there's so much you can do with air support. And so unfortunately he escaped uh, that that day, most likely into Waziristan or the mountainous regions of Pakistan, but obviously we don't know for certain. Mm-hmm. So that was a really tough day. Yeah, but I bet because the whole Tora Bora thing, if I remember correctly, I remember that going on, um, that was sort of being talked about in the news for a good I don't know, was it two weeks? I don't know, it felt like two weeks. I could be wrong, but that was a quite a period of time that the um, everybody was focused on Tora Bora. Mm-hmm. Probably focused on it too long um, mm. and probably focused too much media focus, I would imagine, on it as well. Um, it would have been nice to have kept that a little quiet. Yeah. Um, 
yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because, you know, the media is not not to slam the media. Yeah. The media is wonderful. But to, to have constant reporting on a region for two weeks, it's very easy, especially with no real ground support there mm. for bin Laden to kind of slip out. I mean, he has a two week warning, <laughs> yes. um, yeah. which isn't isn't great. Yeah. And he was buried in deep into sort of caves in that region. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So he needed the air support, obviously, because that helps sort of drive them, flush them out from the caves. But the problem is, is if you have you no one mm. <laughs> on the ground, they're just kind of like, I think I describe it like a colander. Right. And they just sort of seep out. Right. Because yeah. no one to sort of stop them. You can bomb all you want, but they, the ones that don't die scatter. Right. Mm. And, mm kind of have to have folks there to just from a tactical perspective to grab them. Yeah. Yeah. And am I, am I right remembering, is this still when um, it was mainly special forces in the country or were the, or was it at the time of the invasion? I really can't remember now how, how much of troops there were. I'm going to say it was sort of a hybrid. So mm. the full scale invasion, like I believe the invasion was announced in, in October, um, yes. like later ish October. Um, and this would have been December ish. Okay. But, yeah. but we have to remember they're not everywhere, no. right? Troops aren't everywhere. And, you know, typical, the folks that would have been in that region and that mm. mountainous of the area would have been special forces. Yeah. 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 That was cool. I was just trying to remember because it was, yeah. Uh, yeah, quite a while ago. So um, after your time in the vault, you were mm-hmm. assigned to the Weapons of Mass Destruction Office at the Counterterrorism Center. Um, can yes. you talk to us a little bit about some of your assignments and what kind of work you did there? So I can't be super specific, this, but I can give you kind of a broad yeah, um, yeah. feel of my job. So what I specifically did is the Weapons of Mass Destruction Group was divided then again, subdivided into two different sections. The first one would have been sort of your nuclear group. Um, and then the, the other one was folks looking for crude, small scale toxins and poisons and chemical weapons. And so I was on that side. Yeah. Um, the nuclear scientists were kind of on the nuke side. <laughs> that. Um, and so that was our job was trying to look at was Al Qaeda procuring them who was procuring them, where are they going to be using them? Um, and part of that was because actually in the UK, um, the Al-Qaeda manual was found in a home in the UK. The Manchester manual. Yes. In there, what was disturbing was there was a large chapter on bio and chemical weapons. Um, the, the manual is available online, disturbingly, if you want to watch it. So that gave us obviously intelligence that clearly they were trying to procure these things. And so the person at the time, and I realize this, his name is different, used differently now, but at that time, the person who was the person in charge of, of procuring them was a guy named Zarqawi, who ultimately becomes the head of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which yes. later becomes ISIS. So I guess you can say I was looking at him in his infancy stages, right? Because he had sort of a life before that. Yeah. So you were, you were with him before he was popular. <laughs> yes. Before he was in the in crowd. Yes, Before he was famous, exactly. yeah. Yes. If I remember, he was sort of, was he running or building po- uh, poison labs that was started by a group called Ansar al-Islam, which was a um, Kurdish group, is that right? Yes. So that was a, li- a little mm. bit later, what he decided to do. So Al-Qaeda works very much like a franchise, to be honest yeah. with you. And, and you know, Bin Laden at the time would like task people. And so he's like, Zarqawi, I mean, they didn't like each other. We know that. Um, hey, get out of my hair, do the poison stuff yeah. thing. And so he would then like match up 
with other groups, right? Who also, and so um, Ansar al-Islam was one of them, obviously mm. located in Northern Iraq. And yes, he did do work with them, but it was, he was kind of trying to find really anyone and everyone that he could that, that was doing that. Yeah, yeah. And you were also looking at some other plots as well. There's a terrorist named YY who was um, manufacturing chemicals in his apartment. And one of the things I remember was that the, the problem you faced is that you could collect all these sort of materials, but it was very difficult to prove someone's intense is that right yes and so it wasn't actually an american problem and i hate to say this it was more of a european courts yep, yep. problem <laughs> sorry <laughs> that's all right um, we'll take it it's right. <laughs> um, and that's i mean i had a wonderful relationship mm. with really a lot of european yeah. countries they're fantastic but and they knew this too that it was really difficult that i could say hey my sources got you the ricin they got you the the, you know, pestle mortar that was made in, that got you the apartment, they got you the cupboard that it was located in. And then, you know, the problem was, is, yeah, okay, you can arrest them. But, you know, in the European courts, if you couldn't, um, and I have to say Europe broadly, because I yeah. can't say this. No, of course, country, of course. But, um, they would say, well, we can't prove that his intent was to use this, even though I would say, well, I have another source who was saying this is what he was going to like, that was the that was the problem. Yeah, I think I remember. I think I remember you described it as like um, you have all the ingredients to make a brownie or a cookie, <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like coming home. You see all these ingredients, and then the person's denying they're going to make a cookie. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's it's mad. It's mad. And the other thing as well that's very interesting is um, that you sort of discovered at that time that actually a large number of terrorist plots were kind of um, starting actually in Africa rather than the Middle East, even though the focus on the Middle East. Are you able to talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I think that's a forgotten area of the world that we don't talk about a lot. I think we do now, uh, simply because, you know, you saw with France, with Charlie Hebdo, and um, I think it was Belgium that had the airport attack. I yeah. Think, I, I can't recall for sure. Um but and even I think in um, Britain in the 777 attacks, I believe that was a North African. Um, and so and then Madrid bombings were North Africans, I think. So I think up until about 2003, Af North Africa was like really not on the scene. They hadn't done anything. Um, everyone thought Middle East, Middle East, Middle East, Middle East. But the issue with North Africans that we saw was and I think, you know, this being in Europe is that, um, first of all, pretty much all the North African countries speak French and mm. Arabic, mm. right? Which is a lot of them have relatives and family that are in Europe. Yeah. Um, and so it makes travel there relatively easy. Mm. And so I would say Al Qaeda started zoning in on them yeah. because what happened was, you know, was, Oh, you're coming from Saudi Arabia. Oh, you know, that's where the September 11th terrorists were. Mm. And mm. I think that was, you know, on everyone's radar, but not, you know, Oh, you're, you're Tunisian. Oh, okay. You know, and no one, and I think Al Qaeda is very smart and they realize, you know what, this could be a great group of people. That area had been ravaged by civil war for a good 25 years. And, um, it was a religious civil war. So you had a lot of displaced people who were upset with their governments, upset with their current governments. Um, and I think Al Qaeda capitalized on that, which is really how they recruit anyways. Um, and that's really where we started to see this North African stuff emerging and Zarqawi in particular really keying in on that mm. it sounds a bit it might sound a silly question and it's, it's coming to my head you mentioned you just said just now um 
about Al Qaeda being really smart. One thing that always interests me from a general public point of view, a lot of people seem to assume that um, terrorist groups are filled with stupid people. Um, like, you know that film, um, Four Lions? I think a lot of people seem to assume that, ter- I don't know if you've seen the film, but it's a comedy, um, that a lot of the, the terrorists are kind of hapless individuals who kind of bumble around and one or two are successful. But it's not really like that, is it? Um, no, and I'm not saying this because I obviously think they're amazing. Clearly, I spend mm. a lot of time trying to combat them. When I, one of the things I learned about, you know, the enemy is you can't assume that they're less than. Right. And I think mm. sometimes, and I got a wake up call on that, I think in my chapter of one world, um, you know, being this American who thinks I'm better than everyone, you can't, um, assume that anyone is less than, um, and the same mm. goes with terrorists. Um, if you look at the, up, I mean, Zawahiri, who is the current head of Al Qaeda, um, he's a doctor. <laughs> he is a medically mm. trained, very well-respected doctor. Um, and we have to remember, too, I remember when I was speaking with a terrorist face to face and I asked him why he became a terrorist. It made perfect sense. You know, he was quite young when he was first recruited. Um, one of the things Al Qaeda and bin Laden thought was very important was setting up madrasas or schools in Afghanistan to give these folks a basic education. Right. Um, to teach them language. Um, one of the questions I get a lot is. Um, how did you talk to terrorists if they don't speak our language? Well, why are you assuming that they don't speak our language? First of all, America is unique in that I think we're the only country in the world where most people only speak one language. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it was when he told when I asked him how he learned English, mm-hmm. he said, I don't you know, I don't know what you're talking about. When we go to madrasas, we learn um language. That's that's what we learn. And, you know, you have to remember Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, even bin Laden to a certain extent, and a lot of the upper echelons all went to school in the United States or Britain. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so they're not, they're not stupid. No, 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 definitely. There was a film once that describes somebody as crazy, but not stupid. I don't know if that's the right way to describe them, but <laughs> they are, um, but you know, a lot of them too are not even, uh, I think the upper echelons are fanatics and are crazy. I agree with yeah. that. But the lowest ones, a lot of them are joining simply because they want three meals a day and education, mm. right? So it's not mm. necessarily about, you know, the ideology, but I, I mean, yes, I think the upper echelons are. Yeah. 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 No, fantastic. Was it, um, you were at the WMD office during the, the buildups, the Iraq war. And, uh, and there are many commentators out there who like to blame the war on faulty intelligence provided by the CIA. What did you experience the CIA during that time? Yes. I've come to see that the CIA is a lot of times a scapegoat for things because yeah. things are classified. They can't defend themselves. Right. Yeah. And that's one thing that's very beautiful about them. <laughs> um, but another thing that's very frustrating. And so for me, I, like I said, I was not on the hunt for WMDs in Iraq per se. I really, I really wasn't. Um, I was on the hunt for the next attack using chemicals, trying to thwart chemical attacks. And so, yes, I was following an individual, Zarqawi, who had connections to, you know, Ansar al-Islam in Iraq, but we never associated him with the Iraq regime. We had no reason to. And so for us, one of the things we did, even though we were on the ops side, was just to keep our targets straight, if you will, because it it's a lot of people um, would make charts, yeah. um, huge charts that we would put on like six different cubicle walls just to, you know, say Zarqawi from this country, um, you know, last known location, phone number, you know, those kinds of things just to help us. 
one day, um, a member of the Bush administration kind of came through our what we call bullpens or cubicle bays, which was actually not unusual. Obviously, given the situation, there were a lot of trips to the agency by kind of higher ups. And he saw a chart and I said, you know, I want that chart. Fine. The title of our chart were just, you know, um, Zarqawi's uh, Al-Qaeda's Poison Network. That was our chart, very basic uh, chart. We, I don't think we thought anything of it once we had given it to him. It wasn't unusual. Um, we came to see later that it was used by Colin Powell when he gave his speech to mm-hmm. the UN about terrorist connections to Iraq. And the title, so the chart is available. Like you can search it online, actually. And I noticed the title is different. It says um, Iraq's terrorist connections, um, which is yeah. obviously very frustrating that it was misused. Yeah, because Zarqawi wasn't working for Saddam in any way, was he? That you saw? Not that I saw. I mean, look, I can't. I'm not omniscient. I can't be everywhere. Mm. For us, we had absolutely no reason. Yeah, he was messing with Ansar al-Islam, but that was not a group that Saddam Hussein had anything to do with. And in fact, he didn't like them. So, uh, no. So the the administration effectively were using the fact that there was Zarqawi was in the same kind of country and trying to make that the connection. Is that right? In my opinion, yes. Obviously, I'm not in their brains, so I, I don't know. Um, but I think, you know, if America at the time, right, we, terrorism was a buzzword for us, right? And so I think mm. when you see terrorism, Iraq, oh gosh, we have to go in, right? I fully supported our invasion of Afghanistan. I believed in that um, wholeheartedly. Um, but I think terrorism was used as this buzzword right to enter to iraq do you think the iraq war actually in the end helped in the fight against global terrorism if you want me to be honest no um it's a hard thing to answer because i have friends and people i know that died you know fighting in iraq and i would Mm. never want to diminish their their service Mm. uh but i think in if anything um so I have this this theory about where terrorism grows and terrorism grows in what we call fail or fragile states. Um, you know, there's a reason Britain doesn't have, you know, homegrown terrorists as much because you're not a fragile state. Right. There's Iraq because of the war became greatly destabilized and mm. basically a fragile or a failed state. And Zarqawi, who was already there working with AI, um, Ansar al-Islam up in the top, um, decided, you know, this would be a great place for Al-Qaeda to sort of grow. And he established Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which later morphs into ISIS. And I think that's what we yeah. saw in Afghanistan um, as well. Yeah. And as you were saying earlier, those those groups kind of fill a void, don't they? It's failed. Date. So if your government is not providing the things that you need to survive, infrastructure, education, healthcare, food, then someone else is going to step in and do that. And you really can't we just never really talk about that being a huge reason um, why terrorists, maybe because mm. it's not sexy. It doesn't, you know, not, I don't know, but I think it's really why terrorism flourishes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, there's a, there's a podcast that was is inside the caliphate where they interview people who lived in ISIS territory. And one of the big things they talk about is two big things, but one of them was the fact that ISIS could guarantee electricity Absolutely. and water. Because they had a whole, you know, monopoly on oil basically at the time and they can. And I don't blame people necessarily, and it doesn't even mean that those folks are ISIS supporters and even accept the ideology. All Mm. it means is that ISIS can give them what they need to survive. That's all that means. Yeah. 
Yeah, and they also, I mean, we're going a little bit into a bit more depth there, but they, they also, ISIS, um, because of the Sunni-Shia divide, they also provided protection, because am I right that the Shia started to dominate in Iraq with um, groups attacking Sunni villages and things like that, and ISIS kind of ended up protecting them, is that right? We, not so smartly, decided to put in a Shiite president in a predominantly mm. Sunni country, and like, what did we think was going to happen? as a result of that. <laughs> and ISIS is Sunni. So of course, they're going to help the Sunnis against any attacks. Yeah, it wasn't very well thought out. Actually, I remember in your book, you mentioned that, that there was um, there were plans and, and um, studies done into the infrastructure of Iraq post the invasion, but it seemed like they were sort of somewhat ignored, weren't they? I think so. Um, I've never really had, obviously, I've talked with my colleagues from the CIA, but I've never really talked to anyone from the Bush administration at that time about what they were thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll move on from um, Iraq. But uh, so after that time, you you went to an unnamed African country that had suffered a series of terrible coordinated suicide bombings. And, uh, and during that time, you were given the derogatory nickname Malibu Barbie by a local intelligence services officer. Um, and you also encountered a very negative CIA officer called Scott, who was based there. Um, <laughs> can you talk to us about this time? And it also, this encounter with Scott, and I think it was his wife kind of sowed the seed to your later career in the FBI. Yeah. So um, I don't know. I didn't mind the Malibu Barbie so much. I think I sort of just expected it. I didn't expect it from this country, to be totally honest with you. This is yeah. not a country that I expected. Um, you know, certain ones that were very conservative, I had, I guess I could say braced myself. Um, but this was not a country that I had expected it from. I think part of the problem and why they were rude is because of Scott. <laughs> Um, because I think you had a CIA, you know, station in this country that did not care about terrorism. Yeah. And so you had to remember they sow the seeds of that, of how that intelligence service then perceives you. And so I think that was part of the problem. Like Scott didn't want to be working counterterrorism. It was like very mm. clear. <laughs> um, mm. he didn't like it, didn't care. Um, didn't get along with the station chief. There were just a lot of unrest. Um, and I think because that intelligence service was frustrated, clearly, um, they didn't treat us all that great. So I sometimes I think it's less about me and more just about how they could get at that station. Um, I don't think Scott was like a bad guy. I think he just didn't want to be doing what he was doing there. Um, but I was very fortunate in that, you know, our folks that were there in all the other countries we're taking things seriously and we didn't have any problems, but Scott's wife had invited us to his house for dinner um, one night. And I really had a heart to heart with her because I was almost always the only woman. So I think she was just glad there was another woman there. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, we started talking she talked about how lonely and isolating her life was overseas. And all she wanted to do was get back to the States. And I think it was at that moment that I realized um, I loved the CIA. I didn't leave under bad circumstances at all. Um, but I didn't want to live the rest of my life overseas. It wasn't conducive to a life that I ultimately wanted. So I got, you know, this bright idea of oh, let's apply to the FBI. I could still work stateside, you know, not have to go overseas um, and work the counterterrorism mission. So that's where that came from. Yeah, yeah. Are you able to just paint a picture for the audience a little bit about um 
how CIA officers sort of have their families abroad? Because it, it does sound quite lonely from what I've sort of read of it over the years. So it depends on the station that you're at. And some of the more dangerous stations, they're what's called unaccompanied tours, which means you cannot take your family. It's just you. Yeah. This one was not one of those. Um, and so, you you know, you can take your family, but you have to, you know, you live if you have a spouse that doesn't speak the language, you know, the kids are going to, you know, the American schools there, but Mm. it's, it's very isolating. Yeah. There's a really cool, I can't remember the title of it right now, but there's this really cool cookbook from the CIA. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen this book. Um, And they talk a little bit about, yeah, oh, it's a great book. And and there's a, I think it's a chocolate cake recipe that's particularly famous in there. Um, But there's some funny stories in there about like, um, you know, people had their family stationed in certain places. And there's some, and I remember some story about some officer accidentally ran over a goose or something. um, And and these geese were important to the house because it kept the snakes away or something random like that. But it's it's an interesting book for audience members to try and <laughs> I have the um I think my mom has one too, but I have that. Yeah, yeah, it's a really cool book. <laughs> so um before you left the CIA, you you um you were working on stopping another terrorist who you call H. Um can you tell us about some of the difficulties that you faced in the in the sort of trying to stop H from doing what he was gonna do? Well, I think just bottom line was that a lot of our activities were overshadowed uh, by the Iraq war. Um, but also, I lost him at certain points as well, um, because other intelligence services wouldn't follow him um, on certain days. And yeah. Um, so, yes. Yeah. So, and and um, how long how long did that kind of investigation kind of go on for? Because the one thing with espionage and and counterterrorism, a lot of these cases do go on for quite some time. They're not quite linear, where it's just like one case. You're kind of juggling things. Yeah. Aren't oh, they? yeah. No, uh, probably about three years. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. Three years. Yeah. Well, that's normal. That's actually not that abnormal. Um, about three years, maybe that's pretty quick. Um, I think people would be surprised. <laughs> they assume you know, things happen really fast and they don't. Yeah, yeah. It's not like law and order. <laughs> no. No, that's cool. That's cool. So um, in August of 2004, you went on and to join the FBI. And I will be up front and say I was actually appalled by the way you were treated at Quantico during your training and that your career in the field office in Los Angeles. I mean, the things that you described there were not what I expected from the FBI, to be quite honest. And I'm sure they weren't what you expected either. Um, can you talk to us a bit about your transition from the CIA to the FBI and the very different kind of working culture? that you encountered? Well, I think the bottom line is the culture is different based on their missions. The CIA is an intelligence gathering organization. And um, I was I was talking with someone just the other day on the phone who used to be uh, very high up in the agency on the op side, male. And, you know, he said, he's like, we have to have a 360 view of everything. We do. We have to have all these different perspectives. We have to approach everything with an open mind. Um, Whereas the FBI, like you had said, is very linear, right? Here's a law. We have to enforce this law. There's no analysis of that law, (laughs) right? That's going in. So that aside, um, I assumed because at the CIA, I was treated fantastically. I won lots of awards. I was sent into war zones. I'm still very good friends with people there. Um, and so I just assumed it would be the same way there. Um, but what had happened was I was, I was the youngest one in my class by far. Um, most people were in their thirties. I was in my mid twenties. Um, Mm. and I think that I'm very feminine, um, in how I present. Um, but I never had any issues with that. 
at the CIA. No one cared. Um, and so I just continued on the same uh, path. Uh, and I think people had issues with that really from day one. Um, a lot of people in my class didn't believe that I had worked at the CIA um, and where my supervisor could have stepped in and said she did. We had to do her interview there. Like, you know, no one stepped in to to help. It would have just, in my opinion, been such an easy fix. And I think, you know, everything that that kind of happened caused me in my training to almost withdraw. Right. And just become a complete island, kind of quiet by myself. I did my own thing by myself because why? Um, and so maybe that's perceived too as, you know, excuse my language, bitchy um, and standoffish, but I don't know that I had any other choice. I had tried to be friendly and that didn't work. Um, and so I just needed to get through it. So I just kind of. Yeah. Can you describe a little bit about the, there was an instructor, I've forgotten his name, but he had a gold chain um, <laughs> that you described and he kind of painted him. He looked a bit like somebody out of The Sopranos. Um, yeah. And he was, he kept sort of um, bringing up your former career in the CIA. He even blamed the CIA for 9-11, I think, in the opening day. That was the problem. I've, I've had a lot of, a little bit of time now since the book has come out to kind of like reflect on that. So the way the training works, and from what I understand now, it still does, is that you have a supervisory special agent who, to be honest with you, isn't with you all that much. And then you're given two field agents. So they're agents who are out already in fields, but they come to Quantico for these like short periods of time to kind of shepherd a class. And they're the people that you see every single day. They live in your dorms. You're supposed to go to them with problems. And so he was one of them. And so I think the problem is, is when you have my supervisor and him both acting this way, what example does that show for the students in my class? Now, granted, they're adults and should have acted differently. But I think it's when we see the people in charge, not the leaders. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's called de-individualization, is it, where a group starts to behave in a certain way. Especially when it's at the top. And because mm. he was just such a, he was so loud, so loud um, and so obnoxious and so inappropriate and constantly on me, um, you know, Oh, hello, Tracy. You're lying about the CIA. You're lying about the CIA. Like, that's how he would talk constantly. He created these, like, groups that you were in with him or you were out with him. And it was just like, uh, have we gone back to – I couldn't understand. It was so weird. And the other person that we had was a female. Um, and she kind of – she was on the quieter side. But um, she was so docile that she just kind of did whatever he was doing. And so no one in any kind of leadership position, they were all setting these bad examples. So I guess I shouldn't have expected anything differently from my class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it sounded like a terrible time. There was also this episode where with that same instructor, you had to do a kind of mock suspect interview. So no, it wasn't my instructor. It wasn't my, it wasn't the, um, one of my shepherds. It was, so you have for different parts of training, you have different mm. instructors, like one does um, tactical stuff, right? Then you have firearms instructors. And then this one happened to be an interview instructor. Um, and, you know, we wear a uniform at Quantico, but for this, they're like, okay, we want you to wear a suit because you're going to be doing an interview. We want you to put on that persona. Fine. Um, so I wore a suit that, I mean, it was pretty old. Like I had worn it at the CIA a lot. <laughs> No one said anything. Um, it was pants and a jacket. It fit me. I don't know what else to say about it. Um, and uh, I was told by my female uh, shepherd, 
pulled me aside and was like, hey, um, you made him really uncomfortable in your suit. So you're going to need to apologize and go get some different suits. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I know my initial reaction was not appropriate, but... Um, <laughs> I don't blame you though for your reaction. <laughs> I remember exactly what I said, and it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, they made you write a letter of apology, didn't they? And in your book, you meant you you kind of outlined some of the different drafts that you uh, of what you wanted to say versus what you had to say in the end. So the letter of apology, I don't know that I did a bunch of different drafts in real life, but I know that I had a lot of things to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Initially, and so that was based off of the things that I said, not to him and not even to that female. It was more when I mm. called my family and was was talking to them about it because I was pretty private. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, no, fair enough. Can you tell us a little bit about your time at the LA office? So after your graduating from Quantico, you were assigned to the LA office, which, which was quite a good assignment geographically for you because you were from LA originally. Yeah, so I wasn't just assigned to the LA office. I was assigned to a resident agency. So the way the FBI works is that in the big offices, so LA, San Francisco, New York, um, Boston, you have smaller regional offices that kind of branch off of that. And so I was actually sent to the Orange County um, resident agency, which is where I'm from. So for me, it was even better. But what had happened there, unbeknownst to me, was that there was an individual who was two classes ahead of me um, at the FBI Academy, who had heard all this stuff about me, um, and went ahead and told everyone in my office. So by the time I got there, there was already this. And it was interesting. The day I left the bureau, I wish I would have saved it. But he texted me this like 14 page text of apology, um, <clears throat> which was validating in a way. But he had already really ruined it. So um, it's not that at the FBI, I did not leave because I didn't think my talents were being utilized. Um, I left the day that my boss told me I'd be a good agent on my knees under his desk. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That, um, it's hard for me to say if I would still be there or not. I didn't, mm. I liked doing dumpster diving in trash. I, I, I enjoyed all of that, but I never got a fair shot because of the way that I was treated. So it's hard for me to say if I would still be there or not. Um, that I don't know the answer to. Um, so I obviously became a teacher uh, and I taught for about 14 years. And I taught at one of the largest girls schools here in the United States. And um, I taught in public school as well. But most of my time was in a private school. And the girls really wanted to know about national security and terrorism. So I started a class on um, espionage, national security, um, foreign policy and terrorism. And it's really just sort of taken off. And the girls, I've done that for about 10 years. I have students now who are in the CIA, FBI, Homeland Security, us, the Supreme Court, and I'm just really excited about it. Yeah, no, fantastic. And you were saying a lot of the uh, places like the FBI, CIA, State Department, and then the government could sort of benefit from a female perspective. Um, can you tell us a little bit, a bit more about that? So I was reading an article the other day, um, and this was from a bit ago, but it was from a former chief of the Mossad, which is, is um, CIA, and he was discussing that it's not that it's not about who's better men or women. That's I think we're all good. Just we bring different things to the table. And while he was talking about there needed to be more female perspectives um, in espionage, because we bring female traits, men and women are biologically different. We know that we're not the same and that's okay. But the 
problem is, is like when you have something like the FBI, that's only 20% women, you're missing sort of this huge perspective, right, of the population. And we know females are better listeners. We know females empathize better. We know females are better judges of character um, and those kinds of things. But then men also bring great Mm. tools to the table, too. And it was really great to see an article by the head of Mossad, who's a male, kind of talk about that. And I think the only way that this gender disparity is going to change. And, you know, I think even too looking at the idea that fragile states or failed states breed terrorism, that's more of a female way of thinking. That's not bad. That's not good. It just is. The tactical stuff is more of a male way of thinking. So maybe we need to bring the two together. <laughs> um, we're just sort of missing that voice. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's true. It kind of, um, sorry, my mind's always about movies because I'm a filmmaker, but there's, have you seen the film Charlie Wilson's War? I have not. I'm not a big. I'm uh, not a movie okay. person. I'm sorry. Okay, that's all right. That's all right. No, 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 no it's, it's, it's my thing. There's just this this scene at the end of the film. Um, you know, because it's all about the covert operation to arm the Taliban, yes, and then of course. um, and there's a bit towards the end where uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's playing the lead CIA guy behind the um, arming of the Taliban. So the Russians have finally been defeated. They've left Afghanistan and the CIA is saying, you know, that that, that now, in a sense, that we've got to um, consider the other side, you know, the education, the infrastructure, those kind of things, because the fanatics are taking over. And they in the film, they kind of show that there's this sort of, um, when it's the kind of the war and the, there's arming the Taliban, there's lots of interest. But the second that bit's over, that military objective's done, it's like the the same rooms now virtually empty and no one wants to talk about it, no one wants to know and, and i think charlie in the film right. i think the line is that um they they feel like they messed up the end game and they did if you think about it um, i don't think their intentions were bad but the problem is is when and i know that this is oversimplifying mm. it but when you're missing a different mm. perspective <laughs> um you know how and i think women are so good at that yeah we are. Um, we bring a different perspective, but I think males are ex- excellent, you know, on the battlefield. And so I just think that we're just, you can't have a world. And I'm, I'm wondering too now, just in talking to you, thinking about the Iraq war, right? And the aftermath of that, I do wonder how many females were involved in, in sort of that policymaking. I don't know. Um, I'd have to go back and look now, but, um, it's an interesting perspective. Definitely. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Where can listeners sort of find out more about you and your work? Sure. Um, well, you can buy my book would be great. The Unexpected Spy. Um, it's available everywhere and it's on um, audiobook as well. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Tracy, um, at Tracy Walder or on Instagram at The Unexpected Spy or my website, tracywalder.com. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tracy. It's great. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.